Welcome to another episode of Axe of Blood God, US Gamers official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. How are you holding up? I'm holding up as well as I possibly can, still playing that game that is taking over my life, Animal Crossing. Yeah, me too. Um, my husband's in kind of a stalemate where he's playing chicken with, with Flick, because Flick hasn't shown up in ages, so our our our, our island is covered with bugs that he's oh, saving no. for when Flick comes around. And I said, why don't you just sell it to, to Nook or something? He's like, no, now it's a game of chicken. Now I, I refuse to relent. He's very much a Taurus. Oh, no, it's one of those situations. It's like, why why should I decide uh, to sell everything? He's the one that sucks. It's it, it, <laughs> totally it. That's 100% it. So as long as it's on his side of the island, I don't care. <laughs> okay. Wait, are you on the same island? We're on the same island. We play together. Um, oh. I just kind of have my orchard. I have bullshit land, which is like an amusement park I'm making. Uh, yeah, and he has his cliff. I'm good. I have a cannabis chill spot, uh, sketchy docks, uh, an altar to the blood god, <laughs> nice. uh, and a really nice lakeside estate. I saw you had a nice washroom, too. Yes. I did not intend to build a bathroom, but I just seemed to somehow end up with one. That's how it happens at Animal Crossing. You just end up with rooms. Yeah. It's like, well, I got all this stuff. I might as well make this. And then I kind of was like, oh, I really like this, actually. So and I'm going to keep this. Lots to cover in this episode. Nadia, we'll start by talking a little bit about Assassin's Creed Valhalla, mm -hmm. the new game by Ubisoft, which I guess Assassin's Creed's an RPG now, so we should talk about it, huh? I agree. I think we had that big, big discussion last time. Uh, what was the last one? Origins or was it uh, Odyssey? It was Odyssey. It was it? Odyssey. Yeah, the one yeah. that was uh, with Cassandra and all of them and forcing Cassandra yeah. to be straight and have babies. People oh, that's weren't right. happy about that. <laughs> yeah, that was the one. And that was very, very RPG-like. So here we are with another. I'm, I'm guessing it's going to be very RPG-like. I don't see why they would go backwards on this. And also we're going to be continuing on with the console RPG quest after a little bit of a delay. We're going to be tackling the Nintendo GameCube next. It occurred to me, Nadia, that actually we should probably be doing the Game Boy Advance. But whatever. The die is cast. I was thinking about that as I was writing the notes for this episode. I'm like, wait a minute. I'm mentioning the GBA a lot here. Maybe we should have done that first. <laughs> well, that's what happens. Uh, time is kind of wiggly right now. Uh, it's all it really Jeremy Barramy to lift a quote from The Good Place, which I just finished. Which, by the way, is a good show if you haven't watched it. I strongly I recommend watch it. Yeah, I think you would like it. It's very positive and wholesome. Yeah, I could do some of that right now. Also pretty funny and very digestible. It, I, I often am surprised that it was a network TV show because it feels like something that I would be watching on streaming all the time, which I ultimately did. So, Yeah, I've yes, been streaming. Hmm? Well, yeah, time is, is kind of messed up, and I've been streaming Beastars, which is like that weird furry Zootopia, like extra furry Zootopia sort of show. About the a wolf anime that falls one. In love with, the anime one, the wolf that falls in love with a rabbit. And I find the world really interesting, but the just the romance is really boring. But I'll get through it. There's only 12 episodes. It looks like a show that is most beautiful in still screenshots. It absolutely is. It's very... That Netflix animation where you have, like, all these nice keyframes and not much else. I'm a little bit between shows at the moment. But at a certain point, I'm sure we'll pick up something again. We finished Star Trek Picard, so we were talking about doing a little run through Star Trek The Next Generation. Oh, there you go. Yeah. 
got some uh, retro action in there. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, so yes, we're continuing the GameCube console RPG quest, and we're also continuing the track of the week, which seems to have gone over pretty well with our audience. I'm glad that you guys are enjoying it. I enjoy doing it too. It's a nice little deep dive each week, and I feel like I'm learning a lot about different composers. Yeah, I agree. That's always It's always good to learn about game composers because you always have the big names that get through, like Uematsu, of course, you know, everyone reveres him for good reason, but uh, kind of you have a, a lot of amazing composers, uh, particularly with JRPGs, that get a little bit lost in the shuffle. Yeah, and this next one is quite good. Yes, absolutely. Very, very unique. An interesting choice, I have to say. Oh, and by the way, uh, a lot of people had thoughts on our uh, uh, Trials of Mana, Secret of Mana discussion from last week. Oh, I bet they did. <laughs> I bet that, that words were said. <laughs> All right. If you enjoy the podcast, can I suggest that you leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever podcast service you like? Uh, it helps with the visibility of the show. You can follow me on Twitter at these underscore catbot and Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. And also, we have a weekly newsletter that comes out every single Wednesday, courtesy of the lovely Nadia Oxford. And Nadia, what was the topic of this week's newsletter? Well, I got a notice in the mail. Uh, basically, there's going to be a Final Fantasy VII remake music concert in Toronto in June. And I hadn't really secured any tickets yet, but it was one of those things I was considering. And of course, it was canceled because obvious reasons. And uh, so I just kind of started talking a little bit about live performances of RPG music that I have attended. And I've attended a few. Have you attended any? Never for RPGs, but I have attended live performances of Zelda music. Yeah, so you went to Symphony of the Goddess too, as well, right? I don't know, probably. (laughs) Something of the Goddess, something, something. But either way, like I went to Symphony of the Goddess and it was actually really, really nice. I enjoyed it. I like live video game performances because, you know, they put the, usually they put the game on the big screen, right? So you can kind of see a nice little medley and they're doing beautiful little uh, renditions of various popular tracks. And you see lots of cosplayers at these particular events. You really do. Like there's cosplayers everywhere. Every like event that I attend, it's usually at the Sony Theater in Toronto. Um, Mm. And when there was actually the last one that I attended was uh, Distant Worlds Final Fantasy, which is probably my favorite of the concerts because they're always excellent. And there was one year I attended and they did the whole opera from Final Fantasy VI, like had the singer on stage and everything. It was really, really good. Um, but uh, in, uh, in the, the Otakon performance last year had a lot of really, really hyped up people because, of course, you had Otakon, you had a Final Fantasy concert. These two kids behind us wouldn't shut up about crystals. For some reason, they're just going on about crystals. And the girl next to me, my friend, just kind of turns around and tells them to shut up about crystals already. They just <laughs> wouldn't let it go while we're trying to listen to the nice music. Well, I live in California, and people won't shut up about crystals here either. So <laughs> you're in good company. But we're talking about crystals of wind, water, earth, and fire. <laughs> Was Uematsu at this particular event? Yes, the last one I attended, uh, he's not, he hasn't been at every single one I've attended, but he has, he was at the last one and he conducted, of course, One Winged Angel. That's pretty rad. It was pretty cool. Yeah, I, uh, speaking of Final Fantasy VII Remake over on the website, I wrote an article that more or less was like, yeah, the more I get some separation of, from Final Fantasy VII Remake, the more I like it. And I explained yeah. why. Also, we picked Final Fantasy VII Remake as our game of the month over at US Gamer. 
I was like going, well, that's an interesting choice. But also it was a little bit of a default option because it was kind of clearly the best game to come out this month. I don't think we rated any game higher than it. We rated Trials of Mana higher than it. Oh, uh, yes. Trials of Mana, our default <laughs> game of the month. <laughs> it wins. I mean, one thing I have to get Trials of Mana over Final Fantasy VII Remake, the AI in Trials of Mana is so much better than in Final Fantasy VII Remake. And I find that you one think of the most so? frustrating. One of the most frustrating things about Remake, I think, is that the the AI is stupid. And everyone's like, oh, just switch between the characters and fill up their ATB bars that way. And I just find that... I'm not, a, I'm not a person who's good at multitasking. I find that very, very confusing. So I'm still going through Final Fantasy VII. And again, I love its story. I love its characters. I'm, I'm having a good time with it overall. But I'm just... I find myself switching to easy more often than not because I just want to get through the story. And I'm tired of being bad at fighting. <laughs> Part of it is my fault because I I am not thinking in the frame of Final Fantasy VII Remake. I am thinking in the frame of Final Fantasy VII. And I'm thinking in the frame of Materia and what they do in the old game versus the new game. So I'm just kind of having a hard time wrapping my head around all that. I'll get to it someday, but I do really salute the people who are going through this game again on, like, ultra hard mode. And... It's really interesting to me because I thought Final Fantasy VII, to be honest, I thought it would be like, oh, people will play the story and it'll fade away. But no, it's still hanging in there. People are still playing it and still talking about it. Uh, I mean, there are a bunch of secret bosses to be able to fight as well. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Uh, so I think people are taking that on, but they're just going through the game again, like in, in harder modes. And there are some good, there are some boss battles to which I, I wish them very good luck because Reno and Rude as a pair is not a joke. No, uh, that was a pretty tough battle, but actually I didn't have to set it down to easy until I fought Rufus. That was a hard battle. That, To be honest, that should be a hard battle because, that, as I said in our last episode, that was a really epic battle in, uh, in the original game as well. I remembered it being pretty easy, actually, in the original game. It was just so intense. I loved it so much. Yeah, you just got to kill his stupid dog. Well, I shouldn't say stupid dog. He's a nice dog. All dogs stupid are good, dog. that was a stupid dog. <laughs> Dark Nation. I'll never forget that name. I, I love that Rufus, you don't see Rufus at all for most of the game. And then he's like, hi, I'm here. <laughs> By the way, I exist. By the way, my, my dad's gone. Here I am. Anyway, uh, spoiler alert for a 25-year-old game. Okay. Again. C continuing onward to this week's big news, Ubisoft announced a brand new Assassin's Creed game, Assassin's Creed Valhalla. And as I tweeted... Yes. God help me, I might actually play this one, Nadia. I probably will. Um, I know Vikings are so overdone, but I like Vikings. I think they're always a lot of fun. Um, in school, I know that this could be, uh, I was the exception, but maybe I was the rule here. In school, we learn a lot about Vikings because we don't really learn about Christopher Columbus because, number one, he's a genocidal maniac. Number two, it was the Vikings who landed in Canada, like, you know, not Christopher Columbus. So we, we learn about like the settlements in Newfoundland and what have you and how they just kind of said like, you know, screw this actually and went back home. <laughs> <laughs> Too cold. Too cold. Uh, yeah. Theory is that they landed here during a, a warm spell and then that ended and they're like, whoa, this is the way it is. Usually, well, screw that. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm okay with Vikings. I, like I said, overdone, but something, I don't know, even the way like even the way like Greek myth is overdone, um, I find Vikings to be a lot more compelling. Like, I didn't play Assassin's Creed Odyssey because ultimately I realized I don't actually care about ancient Greece. Yeah, um, that's a funny thing. I know a lot about Greek myths. Like, I can sit there and talk about them all day. 
which reminds me there's a line in Animal Crossing where Celeste is trying to explain the constellation of Taurus and how Zeus turned into a bull and, you know, kind of uh, ran away with uh, Europa. And as Celeste put it, Zeus does not know boundaries. So I thought that was actually a really good G-rated way to say that Zeus just has to bang everything. Uh, so yeah, I know a lot about Greek myth, but uh, I just never cared that much about ancient Greek society. Uh, I find ancient Rome more interesting, but even then I've always been had more of an affinity of, you know, the past thousand years than for the past 2000 or 3000 years. So yeah. So as a consequence, I wasn't all that interested in playing Assassin's Creed Odyssey, which is definitely the most RPG-like of the series. Also, Assassin's Creed Odyssey, like, that was the point where it just went full Witcher. Like, Ubisoft went, <laughs> meh, and just started aping a lot of the things about Witcher 3. And it always, like, from what I did play, it always struck me as kind of a simpler, more, maybe a little more simplistic version of The Witcher 3, which uh, kind of annoyed me, actually. <laughs> Felt Is cynical. That what you and Mike were. You, you and Mike were fighting about something in the in the chat yesterday, and it's something to do with Assassin's Creed, and he put up the neutral face of displeasure. And I think it has something to do with you guys talking about not liking Assassin's Creed Odyssey. It has a lot to do with the... I mean, I said I didn't like Assassin's Creed Origins because I don't really jive with the ancient Egypt setting, and I didn't care to play Assassin's Creed Odyssey because, again, the setting didn't really jive with me, and I thought... Again, it felt a little too simplistic with the combat and everything. Uh, and then I got... so, But now, like with this game, I mean, they're kind of pushing all of my buttons, Nadia, with Assassin's Creed Valhalla. I mean, first of all, I, I like the look of it. I mean, you have snow. I mean, it's basically just Witcher 3 and Skyrim meshed together into one big... Uh, with a historical setting. Uh, okay. Yeah, it's, it's like England, right? Like... Kind yeah. of cold and green. That's I like that setting to be honest. Reminds yeah, me and gray, kind of pretty. Yeah, yeah, very rugged, like the men. I already feel an affinity for the setting. I like the time period. I like being able to play as a Viking, uh, and also it has things like base building. You get base building. I'm gonna want to play it. This is the first time in a long time that Assassin's Creed has had base building. So, and then you can go raiding other settlements, and I'm like, ah, oh, dang it, Ubisoft, you finally got me. I like how the, the, the trailer for the, the game kind of juxtapositions the King of England's, like, talking about how, oh, the, the Vikings are savages and brutal, and they don't know mercy, and, like, they're showing, like, the Vikings kind of being good to each other and to their family, and then it's like, hey, you're Vikings, and you can raid other Vikings. Yay! <laughs> Let's get brutal. Mike could probably speak to this better than I can, but there's an interesting divide going on in the Assassin's Creed community where Ooh, there are drama. plenty of people who would much rather have the old style of Assassin's Creed back with a, more of the open world action kind of setting. And then there are the people who prefer the more RPG approach. Uh, obviously, we here at Acts of the Blood God prefer RPGs. So we're going to automatically move in that direction a lot more than Assassin's Creed. <laughs> but also, it just goes to show that the series has always been much more about like, well, let's capitalize on whatever the trends happen to be. And the trend happens to be big, fat, open world RPG. So that's why it's going in that direction. When they say the old direction, do they mean like icons everywhere? Yes, icons and Ubisoft Towers. Ubisoft Towers and icons, yeah. 
Can you imagine a Viking kind of scaling a tower? <laughs> yes, I can, actually. I know they could probably do it, but it would look like just like this gruff, burly man going, <laughs> getting up that tower. Because, you know, usually associate it with like, you know, these, you know, lithe men, uh, you know, the assassins, but uh, not Vikings. I asked people on Twitter, why do you like Assassin's Creed? And the answer generally that came back was, I really love the extremely detailed setting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even if I'm not into the setting, uh, you mentioned Egypt, and it's like I find Egypt very interesting, but I just don't like deserts. I think deserts just yes. are ev the, the antithesis of everything I like in nature. So I'm just like, yeah, you can have Assassin's Creed, Egypt, whatever it was called, um, over there. I'm good. Although I do like hippopotamuses, and those are in there. You're from Canada. I'm from faux Canada. We both like cold, snowy landscapes. Uh, yeah, it's like, ew, sand, no. And also, we are, Minnesota has a large Swedish and Norwegian and Finnish community. Therefore, we have very strong connections to the Vikings. So There you go. That's why so, you're called the Vikings, the, the football team, right? Yes, the Minnesota Vikings, those poor, poor bastards. <laughs> I see. Those poor purple jerks. <laughs> but yeah, Nadia, oh. I think that I am going to actually pick this one up and actually play it. Well, Let's it's coming it holiday 2020, supposedly, which is not exactly soon, but sooner than a lot of games. Yeah, and it'll be on Xbox Series X. Uh, they're going to be revealing gameplay for it at the event that is happening tomorrow as the release of this podcast. Ooh. So we'll get to see uh, uh, this game in action. I'm sure it's going to be very beautiful. And, and then we'll look somewhat dated a little bit later. But Hello. yeah, like... Sure, why not, right? It's going to be a big, it's going to be one of the first big next-gen games of the year. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. Assassin's Creed Valhalla, I'm sure we'll be covering it, and I'm sure I'll be playing it. And I'm sure it'll be out in probably October, thereabouts. So, depending. Yeah, they said holiday, right? So, yeah. it'll be anywhere from October to December. They always come out in the holiday, and I expect it'll be very big and sell very well. And... Uh, probably make a bunch of game of the year lists. Uh, it has uh, uh, the team that's behind it did Origins Black Flag. They're very good. So yeah, it's uh, Ubisoft Montreal, if I'm not mistaken. Mike says they're... that they're basically the lead uh, Ubisoft team for Assassin's Creed now. Mm -hmm. um, and in effect, where this team goes, so goes the franchise. So no, oh, good for them. Haunted floors. <laughs> that's the office in Ubisoft Montreal. It's haunted floors. All right, that's Assassin's Creed Valhalla. Stay tuned to US Gamer for more coverage on that. Mike did a really good write-up on why it is the grand unifying theory of Assassin's Creed, which is kind of interesting. Maybe it brings those two sides together. But yeah, maybe. In the meantime, let's talk about the Nintendo GameCube. Don't go away. Okay, Nadia, it's time to continue on with the console RPG quest. This week's topic is the Nintendo GameCube. We're firmly into the generation that started in 2000 with the PlayStation 2 and continued roughly to about 2006, which is when the Wii and the PlayStation 3 came out. Actually, a pretty short generation in the grand scheme of things, I suppose. 
Well, at least by today's standards. So mm -hmm. the Nintendo GameCube released in 2001, not long after 9-11, it would head to head with the Xbox. And it also came out a year after the PlayStation 2. The Nintendo GameCube famously did not do very well. And a lot of people considered it kind of an abject failure. Nintendo was, uh, there were a lot of rumors at the time that Nintendo might actually get purchased by Microsoft. Oh, and, I remember that. And in fact, Rare was taken, went from a Nintendo second party to a Microsoft second party. And a lot of people saw that as the death knell of the GameCube. There were a lot of embarrassing moments. Nintendo refused to embrace online play, so they looked hopelessly behind. It put them into a bad situation with third-party developers. A lot of people saw the GameCube as kind of the kitty console at the time because it was a big, fat, purple lunchbox. <laughs> it sure was. And I, I suppose that when it came to the GameCube, it was the last time that Nintendo tried to actively compete on the front of uh, graphics after that mm. nintendo always had a gimmick and i think that was probably the right call nadia because the play let microsoft and sony own that arms race nintendo would go a third way they would strike out into the blue ocean with the wii and the ds and it may i i don't know that nintendo was in any danger of dying but it certainly secured its future for the next decade or more yeah, um, Nintendo, as you say, these days usually does not compete directly with uh, the competition, so to speak. Uh, the GameCube, well, GameCube was never extremely compelling beyond, okay, it has Mario titles and it has uh, Wind Waker, and neither of those looked extremely good to people at the time because Mario Sunshine was a little bit uh, divisive because of the whole uh, tropical theme. More, so, What was more divisive was... Um, uh, Wind Waker with the cell shaded uh, graphics after people got used to the you know grown up graphics of uh, Ocarina of Time, uh, people really 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 did not like that cell shading. So Nintendo, besides all of that, uh, they launched like a year after the PlayStation Two, which was a humongous hit. So no one out there was going to buy uh, GameCube for third party titles. Even the, the the exclusives like Resident Evil 4 eventually went over to PlayStation of course and, and everything else in the world. So yeah, the, the the GameCube, bless its little heart, it just did not really did not really find an audience because I feel like Nintendo even Nintendo's first party uh games, they were fine, they were good, but they did not have the strength of like a Breath of the Wild or a Super Mario Galaxy. Uh so obviously for that reason it did not really build up a humongous RPG library, but what was there was actually quite good. It's a small handful, but it's a very strong handful. Yes, I was actually surprised because going into this, I thought that we would have another Nintendo 64 type situation. It's like, well, it's a little stronger than the N64. It has games like Tales of Symphonia. But when I look back at the Nintendo GameCube's RPG library, I'm like, oh, it's, it's not too bad. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, There's some good stuff in there. And uh, unfortunately, like, I feel like uh, a lot of people at least tried to give the GameCube a chance, these these developers. Uh, a couple of uh, titles, as we'll talk about in a minute, were actually formed with the idea of like, hey, you know, let's give Nintendo system something to, something to chew on. Let's give it a chance. And they did. And <laughs> sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. 
Yeah, the GameCube library was a bit stronger than everybody remembers. I mean, it there is. was it really is. Developers were still third-party developers were still supporting the thing. They hadn't completely abandoned it. It's just that GameCube games, especially as the generation wore on, and the GameCube continued to not sell particularly well. Developers uh, didn't support it as well. Though interestingly, the GameCube did ultimately. I believe, outsell the Xbox, or at least it was very close. It was kind of neck and neck. I think the GameCube was $22 million, the Xbox was $24 million, but of course the PlayStation 2 was like $155 million. Yeah, <laughs> it was fighting for scraps, basically. At Microsoft, as we'll get into with the Xbox console RPG Quest, I'm sure all of our listeners are looking forward to that one. That's going to be a great one. Uh, very meaty. Microsoft was kind of treating this generation as a throwaway, whereas Nintendo was trying to get its mojo back after the Nintendo 64, and it didn't really. So uh, let's share some of our Nintendo GameCube memories, Nadia. Uh, in 2001, uh, that was the year I went to college, and I did not have any money because <laughs> I was a college student. Therefore, yes. I was not able to buy a GameCube, but multiple of my friends had a GameCube. And so I was able to play it quite regularly. I have very fond memories of a good friend of mine coming over like practically every weekend, bringing his GameCube with him. And the three of us would sit and play Super Smash Brothers Melee constantly. Of course. Yeah, that was a big, big GameCube seller. Uh, that and Double Dash Mario Kart. And I remember thinking how beautiful Melee was, how I loved the orchestrated soundtracks and everything. And... Mm. I didn't even mind that the GameCube was a purple lunchbox because, to me, it looked kind of cool sitting. It looked kind of cool and futuristic sitting there inside uh, an entertainment center. So you could theoretically pick it up and just kill someone with it. Just pick it up by the handle and go. <laughs> That'll be the end of them. Uh, I remember GameCube games got a bad rap for their graphics, but I remember some GameCube games were quite beautiful. Uh, you mentioned Wind Waker. I thought that game was gorgeous at the time. Oh, I thought it was fantastic. I thought it was gorgeous. But when the when it debuted, when it had the trailer debuted, I think it was in Space World, and you had like little cell shaded Link doing like, these Looney Tunes antics with a moblin, people just like rioted, especially in in the West and in Japan. I don't think they cared as much. And Metroid Prime was another game that was that was quite a great lovely. Game. Yeah. So I finally got a GameCube in two thousand three. I bought a GameCube, and then I went and saw Kill Bill. So, that was fun. <laughs> Did you, like, take it, like, put it on a, on a seat beside you and give it popcorn? <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> That's actually really cute. It was at this time that Nintendo was really being aggressive trying to push the GameCube. They slashed the price, and right. they so and they bundled all of the Zelda games with it in a special disc. So I was able to convince yeah. my friend to go in with me on the GameCube. I got to keep the Game Boy Cube. He got to keep the actual game disc. So I got a GameCube for like $70 or something like that. And I was able That's to pick up some used games. And uh, I thoroughly, in uh, that thing kept me company through the long, very cold summer of 2004 while I was living alone and I had no internet and I had no cable TV and we had a giant box elder bug infestation. That was uh, quite the summer. A giant what bug? Box elder bugs. Don't look it up. What? They're gross. <laughs> quite was gross. This a, was this at like a, a college dorm? No, it wasn't. Uh, 
that summer we went and we got an apartment because I didn't really want to go home for various reasons. And uh, we got a garden level apartment for three months uh, that the landlord let us stay in while they waited for another wave of students to come in. And they didn't bother to mention the box elder bug tree that was sitting right there. (laughs) And uh, it got very gross. It was a very stressful few months. But during that time, I discovered Fire Emblem. I discovered Advance Wars, and I discovered, and I played a lot of Pokemon Coliseum, and I beat Ocarina of Time for the very first time. So. Oh, nice! So, yeah. yeah, if you're living alone and there's a billion bugs surrounding you, yeah, the GameCube would be like you know, mom <laughs> from Jesus himself. Like, geez, no wonder. Nadia, what's your, got... what are your GameCube memories? Uh, GameCube, as I recall, it came out in Japan on September twelfth, two thousand uh, two thousand one. So that was a really really bad luck for it. It came out a little bit later for us. I don't remember if we bought it at launch, but we bought it quite soon afterwards. We we were newlyweds at the time, more or less. And um, we were still very, very poor, so I could only get a select few games for it. We had Melee. I saved up for Zelda. And we bought uh, Super Mario Sunshine. And we got, like, Luigi's Mansion for free, which was a good bundle. And I immediately re- regretted uh, Sunshine. But that's that's a story for another podcast, I suppose. Yeah, so even though the GameCube does have some really great RPGs, uh, I didn't indulge in as nearly as many as I as I really would have liked to. The main RPG I played was Super Mario a Thousand Year Door, which was excellent. And um, it's probably the one game I really want to see on the Switch more than any other right now. That was the main one, other than Zelda. Like, you know what? I did play Fire Emblem. I had Fire Emblem for some reason. Wasn't a huge fan, but... You probably were. So Paper Mario, generally regarded as the best in the series, fair to say? Yeah, easily. Um, I would say I like it better than the original Super Mario RPG a lot better. Yeah, I think the writing in that one, I think we've talked about Paper Mario in the past, but it's mainly known for having some of the strongest writing in the series. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe one of the first instances in which Nintendo was genuinely funny. The Paper Mario games, as well as the Mario and Luigi games, they are genuinely, like, some of the funniest games you can play. And Paper Mario Thousand Your Door especially. And it wasn't just funny. It had some really interesting character interactions. I just like the fact that there is this world where Mario can be friends with his enemies. Like, you have Koops, the Koopa. You have Goombella, the, the, the Goomba. And they, they can travel with you. They can fight with you. And, of course, they have different skills related to this, their species. Like, Koops can turn to a shell and, and knock the enemies silly. Goombella is kind of a know-it-all, and since she doesn't really have arms or anything, she has to attack with her head. Um, there's there's others as well. Like uh, there was, a, I think there was a boob, but that, maybe that was the first game. I mostly stuck with Koops because you can only have one person in your party at a time. So I was like, "Up, oh, Koopa, I'm done." They just have so much fun with the actual dialogue. Lots of capitalizations and weird insults, like "you chicken nugget." <laughs> I distinctly remember there were. Penguins, like uh, there's penguin enemies in uh, Super Mario, uh, sorry Yoshi's Island, which is where these were from, and they were they were very Canadian. They they said a and all of that. Well, okay, Super Mario RPG was one of the first self truly self aware Nintendo games. Definitely one of the first, yeah. And I think Paper Mario definitely took that vibe and really ran with it. Yeah, um, it is an extremely self aware game from the very start where you go behind an alley and you see an out, a chalk outline of a dead toad. Like, that's, 
That's the kind of game you're getting into. And in the Japanese version, there's bloodstains for that child. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you want to talk about that feels like very modern, like sense of yes. humor with Nintendo. And I, the thing that also helped is that continuing on from the original Paper Mario for the Nintendo 64, A Thousand Year Door was beautiful, like lovely looking. It game. was. Yeah, like you could still look at that game today and be like, that hasn't aged at all. It looks great. Like if you brought it to the modern times, you would maybe need to upscale it for HD and that's it. Yeah, you could put it on Nintendo Switch and I think that it would make the transition. And I think this was one of the first instances in which Nintendo started to lean away from high resolution, like the best of the best graphics and much more toward uh, stylization, as it were. Yeah. Yeah, um, the first Paper Mario, I think, was made distinctly in that style because Nintendo realized, okay, um, a lot of our games are looking hideous. They didn't say it that way, of course, but they worked with the limitations of the N64 and said, you know, how can we make our games look charming despite the limitations of our system? And so they came up with the, the paper motif, which works very, very well still. And they continued that for A Thousand Year Door, which, as you say, like... I think it's a good example of Nintendo continuing to do their own thing and, you know, stop trying to keep up with the Joneses in terms of technical uh, prowess and just say, okay, here's Nintendo, here's what we do. We're a little bit different, but we're still kind of fun to look at. This was also the time in which Nintendo was sticking resolutely with its particular ethos of being fun. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think it's worth noting that the GameCube era was when Reggie Fizami took over as, I believe, the director of marketing at the time. Eventually, he would become the president of Nintendo of America not too right. long after. And he got on stage and he said, I'm Reggie. I'm here to kick ass and take names. <laughs> and we're all about the games, that kind of thing. I can't remember who said, don't say that, but he said it. Yes. And... Reggie, uh, like apparently from behind the scenes, there was a push to be like, well, can we make Nintendo more hardcore? Like, can we play mm-hmm. to the kids? That kind of thing. And Reggie was like, no, no, we are who we are. We got to yeah. lean into that as much as possible. We can't out Microsoft Microsoft, right? No, Microsoft has more money than God. Microsoft can do anything it wants. So can Sony. Sony has a lot more money than Nintendo. But more than that, trying to go in a hardcore direction. Because... I think, is it fair to say, Nadia, that this was the beginning of what you might call the, the gray era of games? It was it was starting to slide into that time. I think the GameCube was maybe the last bastion of color and happiness. I mean, we definitely got games like Katamari and Persona 4, very colorful games in this period of time. But it also felt like uh, this era was so dominated by the likes of games like GTA and mm-hmm. Mafia, and Driver, and oh, what was that one other game? Oh, True Crime, <laughs> you I know? I forgot about that one. Jesus, all men in cars banging things. And it was the introduction of Splinter Cell. Like, these were the yes. big games of the era. Like, these games that were kind of saying directly, we are more mature. Games are growing up. Like, we have left behind the toy box. I mean... I think the defining game, aside from GTA, is Halo of this time yes. period. And frankly, I did not like the look of these games at the time. I liked the <laughs> Nintendo look. Yeah, and you're right. I think someone suggested behind the scenes that Nintendo should use like a graffiti logo or something stupid like that. And, and, and Reggie was just like, are you out of your mind? So 
good for him because he just came on from like I think it was Pizza Hut and he he knew what Nintendo was about. But fair or not, the GameCube definitely struggled with an image problem, and you saw it uh, like so. Wind Waker and Paper Mario. I mean, I think today people embrace this look wholeheartedly. Mm-hmm. People have really come around on them. There's plenty of GameCube nostalgia. People think it's kind of cute and charming, but at the time, the GameCube was deeply uncool. <laughs> that is the word for it. It's very uncool. And I remember getting roasted a lot in the sprite comics that were very popular with the kids at the time because, yes, it looked like a weird lunchbox. It had very colorful games. And as you say, we're starting to see a shift towards more hardcore shooter, shooter games. And that's just not something Nintendo, no matter how desperate they are, if they had tried that, it would have sunk them pretty bad. So one thing that really defined the GameCube was Nintendo's partnership with Namco, which I thought was pretty interesting. For example, one of the games that came out for the GameCube was Star Fox Assault. It was actually made by Namco. Oh, right. That wasn't a great game. I played that. It was whatever. I I enjoyed (laughs) it at the time. It was a good rental. That's a good way to put it. It was a good rental. Um, I'm not sorry. I don't have it in my library. I don't even remember how I played it. I think a friend loaned it to me. Uh, But perhaps the biggest one, and I would argue one of the, maybe the single most important RPG for the GameCube was Tales of Symphonia, which was released in Japan in 2003. It came out in America in 2004. And I would say that Tales of Symphonia, Nadia, this was the one that made Tales. Or at the very least, Mm -hmm. it created the Tales fandom in the West. It is, I, I was watching a fair number of retrospectives and reading up on it and kind of going back to this time period. And it's really striking how closely people associate Tales of Symphonia with Nintendo in particular. It is a Nintendo franchise to the point that people want Lloyd to be in Smash Brothers. There was of a course. Lloyd Me Fighter in Smash Brothers for the Wii U. And oh, Tales of Symphonia, I think, along with maybe Tales of Vesperia, probably the most beloved Tales game in the West. Nadia, do you remember when Tales of Symphonia came out? Because I very clearly remember this time. I actually do not remember this at all. I just remember playing, as I said before, I played Tales of Fantasia on the SNES, and I just was like, oh, well, this is kind of fun. I'm good. To, to like, my detriment... Um, I was playing with a really, really, really bad fan translation that probably really turned me off the game. So Tales of Fantasia is is definitely one I would I would love to get my hands on. I think it's on Steam, so it's not like I have an excuse. Um, of course, Vesperia is on uh, Switch now. So Nintendo strikes a deal with Namco to put Tales and Symphonia on the GameCube. And this is when Namco, Bandai, they really go all out with this series. This is when... Tales became a transmedia franchise, okay? So, Tales of Symphonia, it had an anime OVA, it had manga, it had all of this tie-in material. They were really throwing everything behind it. And they targeted the GameCube partly because Nintendo struck a deal with them, but also because, Mm -hmm. quote-unquote, this is from producer Makoto Yoshizumi, the hardware is well-suited for RPGs because of short access time and an intuitive ah. controller. That was one of the things that Nintendo always put a, put a big premium on was quick load times. Yes, I, that was the reason they went with the N64 cartridges, or so they say. 
Of course, there's a lot of like licensing and control issues that they could have taken the reins on, but they, their main excuse was we don't want games with loading times, which, which was a big problem with PlayStation and Saturn games in, in the age. And then with the PlayStation 2, uh, eventually Tales of Symphonia came out in the PS2. It was not The PS2 version was not released in North America. And that game, not only did it have a lower frame rate, about 30 FPS, it also had longer load times. And so even though it had extra material, the GameCube in some ways is maybe a little bit more playable. So the PS2 version did eventually come out in a collection that was released in like 2014 or thereabouts. But... Uh, I remember, so I, I mentioned this time when I was in this apartment full of bugs, living alone. <laughs> uh, I also was renting games because I was quite poor. So I rented Tales of Symphonia from the local Blockbuster because I was starved for RPGs on my on my of GameCube. Course. I should have bought a day PS2. What are you doing, cat? <laughs> I made that. I, we make a lot of RPG console mistakes as kids, don't we? Well, I was still a giant Nintendo stan, and I should have learned my lesson because I loved my PlayStation 1, ultimately. Right. And I was like, I wanted games that had the consoles that had Japanese games on them, but I was very much Homer with the pig when it came to GameCube. It's just, it's still good. It's still good. It's still good. <laughs> just a little barren. It's still good. It's still good. I was convinced that, I was always convinced that the GameCube was going to turn around 2003. This is the year. It's gonna happen. The GameCube's gonna happen. start selling. And in fact, when get when I bought my GameCube and they were doing all the sales, I remember distinctly reading with relish the the headlines that the GameCube was now outselling the Xbox. Take that Xbox. We got <laughs> you now. <laughs> Even though the GameCube was like technically like for a Japanese and Western market and the Xbox did not do anything in Japan, it was all Western. Didn't matter to me. I wanted the GameCube to win. Uh, and then I got a game, PS2 a couple of years later. I was like, oh, wow, this is actually... Uh, okay, that, that, that's why this one. Really good console. Okay. I, I learned the, the I relearned the same lessons all over again. But yes, I wanted the GameCube to do really well, and I wanted games to come out on the GameCube so badly. But So yes, I was keeping a close eye on Tales of Symphonia as somebody who tracked all of the Nintendo exclusives. And I rented it, and I was not that impressed with it at the time. Yes. Uh, it was pretty. I liked the the action combat. I thought that the story was a little too similar to Final Fantasy X, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. the main story involves a pilgrimage and unifying the world and ending a cycle. And I was like, where does this all sound familiar? <laughs> I wonder why. Wait Ultimately, I only got about halfway through Tales of Symphonia because at a certain point I had to return the game. <laughs> but Right. Uh, I, I was like, eh, yeah, yeah. And this is actually kind of the case with a bunch of GameCube RPGs, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, so I, I had to return it. But Tales of Symphonia, meanwhile, a lot of people did ultimately like it because there's a whole generation coming up behind me who really loved anime. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I mean, let's say Tales of Symphonia, anime is hell. It's as anime as it gets, holy crap. But yeah, the people who had grown up with um, Pokemon, that exploded around the late 90s. So they were really coming into the the age where they wanted that, that JRPG drama that we all crave at that age. I will say this. Uh, I will say a few things for Tales of Symphonia. First of all, it was very pretty. It was a yeah, good was. dang looking game that uh, definitely took advantage of the GameCube's uh, technology. I would say it's one of the best looking games from that particular era. Um, 
It has a very good soundtrack, as is pretty typical of the Tales series. And it has a uh, one thing that I find pretty cool is that it has this affinity system in which you're building up a hidden affinity score with various characters that affects the relationship with Lloyd. So Lloyd is the main character. And that can affect how the story plays out. So there are reasons to Mm. play through this game multiple times. And it also has the cute little skits and everything. It, in so many ways, laid down the foundation of how we understand a modern Tales game. So yeah, it's uh, it it is the like the root of Tales practically. It was so popular that it actually got a sequel uh, sometime later. So which is somewhat rare for the Tales series. Most of the time, uh, they make a Tales entry. Yeah. It's kind of standalone, a little bit like a Final Fantasy game, and then they just. Or Dragon Quest maybe is a better example. And then they just kind of move on, right? But Tales of Symphonia actually got a sequel. Did it get like a two? Yes, it was actually a Tales of Symphonia 2. A lot of people think Tales of Symphonia 1 is better. But Mm -hmm. that is neither here nor there. I would argue, Nadia, that Tales of Symphonia is the defining JRPG for the GameCube. Mostly because there aren't many JRPGs that came out for the GameCube. (laughs) <laughs> yeah it is definitely the one you hear people talking about the most and um you know even though the gamecube didn't do very well i am intrigued by how many deals nintendo went out there and tried to strike up with third-party uh developers and uh with nick's success i suppose but uh in this case it really seems to have borne fruit another rpg that came out from bandai on the nintendo gamecube also because they were kind of like well i mean nintendo ooh, gamecube doesn't have many rpgs why don't we just uh we'll be nice <laughs> let's let's be nice and give these poor rpg starved audiences a good game we got batten kaitos a series made by monolith soft which of course worked on xenosaga and now have now they're a second party developer for nintendo and they're working on the xenoblade chronicles series which uh, is actually coming out later this month on the GameCube or uh, on yes. the Switch. I'm very excited on the about that. Dig <laughs> it out of your closet, everyone. I remember Batten Kaitos was a game that I wanted and could not afford. That's why I never yeah. managed to That's get what it. I remember. And it was one of those games that, like many other RPGs, critically acclaimed, sold poorly. Mm, the usual for the GameCube. Yeah, and it's not just that the GameCube had a low install base. I think that it looked pretty daunting in a lot of the commercials because it had this card-based system. Did you, did you find it pretty daunting, Nadia? I remember the thing I remember about Baton Kaidos is, is it was one of those games that I followed because as you said, the GameCube didn't really have much in the way of JRPGs. So I followed it, but it definitely, as it got closer to release, I said, I don't know if this is what I want from an RPG because yes, it has the card-based system and it's a little bit complicated. Like, even reading up on it now, I don't quite understand. I think the idea is every, the essence of everything can be captured in a card, uh, like, like food, for example, swords, uh, armor. And you use those cards accordingly in your battles. Like, if you want to heal, you use a food card. If you want to, you know, strengthen your attack, you use a sword card. If you want to protect yourself, armor card, whatever, whatever. Um, I think it was just a case of monolith soft being monolith soft because they're a very they go in weird directions sometimes uh, all the time really and i don't think i was really in the frame of mind to appreciate that i when i will look at old videos of batten kaitos now the thing that stands out to me is that was a very pretty game um yeah 
very colorful, very colorful game. Very much stands out to me. Somebody uh, likened a lot of the art style to the early sections of Chrono Cross, uh, yes. especially the opening village, kind of a tropical theme. Uh, there's... There's a Sweets Land in Baton Kaitos, which I think is kind of interesting. <laughs> Hooray! It's like the land oh, of chocolate teeth. from The Simpsons. That was 10 minutes ago. But no, I, I really like the environmental art in this game. It is yeah, quite like nice. Monolith Soft just does the best environments, in my opinion. They they just make up crazy crap, and, and it usually works. I love it so much. And of course, it had a super baller soundtrack, winning the best soundtrack of the year for the GameCube in 2004. Not that it had a lot of competition. It would ultimately get a Bat and Kaito's Origins that came out in 2006, sold about as well as Bat and Kaito's, and we haven't really seen it since. I believe it came out on the Nintendo DS as well, but... Yeah, I think they were going to have a DS game, but it got canceled. Uh, the Monolith Soft team has said, sure, we'd love to come back to fight and, uh, Bait and Kaito someday, but they're busy with, as you said, Xenoblade Chronicles, and they're helping out with Breath of the Wild too, so they're not doing that anytime soon. I thought it was interesting that Baton Kaito's was kind of spun up as a secondary project for younger staff while the main team worked on Xenosaga and, and the like. But I would argue Baton Kaito's holds up better than Xenosaga ever did. I haven't played Xenosaga, so I, I couldn't tell you, but um, I understand it's confusing. <laughs> Reminds me a little bit of the story of how uh, with Lion King... Uh, Lion King yeah. was the secondary team, the B team at Disney, whereas the A team worked on Pocahontas because they thought yeah. that was going to be the big one and nobody really cared about Lion King. <laughs> well, we all yeah. know what happened there, right? Oh, yeah. Um, turned out no one cared about Pocahontas. It was so boring. <laughs> that movie. So running subplot through the GameCube, as we discussed uh, in the N64 podcast and the PlayStation podcast, Squaresoft and Nintendo acrimoniously broke up mm. in the late 90s. It was the end of the golden age of RPG, JRPGs on the Super Nintendo. And uh, supposedly, Hiroshi Yamauchi, president of Nintendo, said to Square, if you leave, don't ever come back. That's such a Yamauchi thing to say. Jesus Christ. Which, by the it. way, this was a time of transition for the Nintendo GameCube, because this is when Yamauchi retired. And Iwata. That's right, yeah. Yeah, Satoru Iwata, Iwata took over. Up. Yes. So, uh, and of course, we all know Satoru Iwata, very insanely talented programmer who worked on many an amazing game, including Pokemon Gold and Silver for the Nintendo. And I think he really infused Nintendo with his particular line of thinking, whereas Yamauchi was a cutthroat businessman who wanted to destroy everything. Yamauchi was much more like... <laughs> Well, let's find interesting and fun thing, ways to advance the Nintendo brand. And I think the, probably one of the most beloved figures in gaming history now, of course, rest in peace, uh, Iwata-san. Yeah. Iwata was, um, I'm still struck by, like, if you look back at um, old developers, Nintendo developers talking about Iwata, you can really sense how much they miss them. It's like, not just the way you miss a regular colleague, but uh, they almost, like, to me, I feel like Reggie never really recovered from Iwata's death. I feel like something went missing from him that day, and he just mm -hmm. was never quite as fun and sunny. Uh, and there was a, a line that really broke my heart where the team was working on Breath of the Wild, and it was going really well, and they would come up with a really fun idea and say, oh, we can't wait to tell Iwata about, the, about this tomorrow, and they'd realize he's gone. Yeah, sad. I do miss him a lot. So by the time we hit to the GameCube, Square is firmly established on the PlayStation 2, 
and and PlayStation. It is the PlayStation company, but they're starting to throw a few bones to Nintendo. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got Final Fantasy Tactics Advance on the Game Boy Advance, and we got Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles. And I can say as a proud GameCube owner, of course, and a, a huge Square stan at the time, of course, I was paying attention to literally everything that Squaresoft did. And so I was very interested in Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles, a game that I couldn't afford and never bought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Crystal Chronicles was one of those games where I'm like, oh, that's really cool. I can't wait to play that. What? How many Game Boy Advances do I need? Forget this. Four. Four. And there is a single player game. I just didn't really buy it for that. The only four player game I played as a single player, and that's just because I had it was Four Sword Adventures. And sure, I enjoyed it a lot, but it, it sure wasn't a, a, a normal Zelda game. And this was about the time that Nintendo was starting to get into some of its wackier peripheral ideas. <laughs> oh yeah, this, this was peripheral time. A pretty infamous E3 was in an E3 2003, which I remember extremely well, in which Sony and Microsoft were touting their online services, and Nintendo was touting game boy advance connectivity because the game boy advance was still selling well gamecube was not selling so well so why not connect the two by a cord <laughs> and they had pac-man versus was like the big game so everybody was goofing on them so hard because you know microsoft and and yeah. xbox or and sony were rolling out these big hard-hitting games for their online services and nintendo was like we got pac-man versus <laughs> we got pac-man versus we're going to anchor our little strong boat to the sinking boat and see what happens it, it, it was rough and uh, game boy advanced connectivity like whatever like you still see some vestiges it, with it today uh for example like when you play mario odyssey and you can play as a hat that was very much a game boy mm-hmm. advanced con- connectivity kind of situation at the same time like do you yeah. remember in Wind Waker, you could play as Tingle, I think, with the Game Boy yeah, Advance? Yeah, you had like the, the Tingle tuner, which I forget what it does, but it was a, a little bonus thing you could do. Like it had a map and Tingle could harass you. I don't remember. You already mentioned Four Swords Adventures. Uh, and then there was Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles, which in which people could access their menus uh, via what, what amounted to a second screen. And the, mm-hmm. today... A game like Crystal Chronicles would work much better on the Nintendo Switch, which, by the way, it's coming out on Nintendo Switch. So there you go. But yeah, yeah. Of course, at the time, we didn't all each have our own Nintendo Switch. We were all playing on one GameCube, on one TV, and and Square was trying to solve the problem of the inventory, which, by the way, is a problem. Speaking as somebody who has played Diablo three in the past and has had to sit for a very long time while people uh, sort through their menus on <laughs> console, their menus, yeah. Which is a total pain, but uh, maybe just the fact that everybody had to use Game Boy Advance uh, made it a giant pain. Uh, it really did. Like I never touched it because of that. Yeah, I, I remember Penny Arcade, which was still relevant at the time, um, was definitely prom- pushing Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles and going, "No, actually, it's great. We're having a great time." Uh, everybody loved. I mean, and I could imagine that it was a pretty fun four-player party game you know if you were able to get together the game boy advance chords and the game boy advances and that's the trick yeah like i hear it's a great game and i'm actually looking forward to it on switch for that reason but just you have to have the right setup to to really enjoy it and who the hell had that in in 2003 and speaking of online play i mean so the gamecube did have a broadband adapter and there were two games that ever used it 
Woo, good job. Both of them RPGs. One of them was Fantasy Star Online, which if mm-hmm. you want to hear more about that, can I recommend that you go check out our Dreamcast RPG quest with uh, Shane Bentonhausen. And the other one was a little game called Homeland, which, no, it's not the cute. extremely bad drama. It was a <laughs> game that was only ever released in Japan. And it had a single-player component where you were getting these little mascots. And it was very colorful. It looked a little like... Um, it looked a little bit like Katamari. Yeah, it really did remind me of Katamari, where you... Uh, there is a single-player campaign as i understand and once you're done that you can go online with up to like 35 people and and play with them the interesting thing about the broadband adapter which nobody used i mean this game homeland (laughs) it was really annoying to communicate with other players because uh there was a keyboard Mm. uh peripheral but only fantasy star actually supported it Uh, this game wasn't able to make use of it so it it wasn't great no no like Playing Animal Crossing is like trying to type on a feature phone. Do you think Nintendo made a huge mistake by not embracing online? I mean... I think so. I yeah. guess the problem is is that Nintendo never really kind of grokked online. Even today, they... Nintendo, yeah. They're still behind in so many ways. They're just like... They just seem fundamentally uncomfortable with the concept of games as a service or online play and that kind of thing. Like Animal Crossing... I mean, just look at Animal Crossing... <laughs> Like, how annoying it is to get to other people's islands. We were just talking about that. She was like, why is Nintendo's netcode so bad? And I'm like, if you climb the highest mountain and, and ask the sage of sage why Nintendo's online sucks so bad, they probably can't give you an answer. But it probably has something to do with the fact Nintendo's like a 100-year-old company, very traditional, in a country where they're having trouble working from home because a lot of companies still insist that you sign your documents with a stamp from the Meiji era. You kind of have the right of it, but... Uh, Nintendo, I mean, Iwata was famously quite hostile to online play. He was very hostile to online and mobile. And I think another part of the problem is Nintendo is always very, very um, tuned into its family-friendly image. I think it's nightmares to have a, a headline where, you know, just out of the, where just as an example, what would say like you know, Predator targets child through Nintendo online service or something like that. Like they want to do everything they can to avoid that. I would contend that a lot of it was that Nintendo was a very traditional Japanese company and online play did not really take off in Japan in the same way for a very long time. Uh, Certainly not compared to North America, whereas Sony, uh, I mean, yes, and uh, certainly the Japanese arm of PlayStation played a big role, but also PlayStation was dominated by Europe in many respects. And so Mm -hmm. they had a large hand in deciding the path forward for the company. So did uh, the North American branch of Sony. So it was maybe, maybe they were a little more in tune with the trends that were happening in the US and North America, and thus were more prepared to go head to head with, with Microsoft. Whereas Nintendo was kind of like, well, I mean, I'm looking around and I don't see people enjoying uh, yeah. online games over here. So why should we support this thing that we don't understand or like? Yeah, I think Miyamoto said that specifically. He said, um, okay, sure, we'll give you an option to go online, but you take care of the rest because the way we look at it from our vantage point, no one's really interested in online, which, of course, was not true at all. Yeah, like Iwata and Miyamoto just always seem to be kind of put off by the very concept. So 
And uh, for better or worse, like Iwata definitely set the the tone for Nintendo for the next decade or more. And he had plenty of successes where they were rising to heaven, as it were. And they had their share of failures where they were sinking mm-hmm. to hell. And <laughs> yes, yeah. So uh, online play, I mean. I, I guess that's just a uniquely Nintendo thing, and the GameCube was the beginning of that, and it kind of reflected it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they're slowly getting it, but emphasis on slowly here. For sure. Uh, a couple more things before we wrap up. Uh, I, I want to. So, Pokemon, uh, Pokemania was definitely slowing down at this time. It was still a primarily a console. It was primarily a handheld. Uh, RPG series, uh, Pokemon Ruby and Sapphire came out at this time. It was not a great generation, though a lot nah. of people, of course, stand for Pokemon Ruby and Sapphire for some reason. Oh, they do. Um, and Pokemon Coliseum came out, and it was kind of a big deal because, uh, well, two reasons. First, Pokemon Ruby and Sapphire locked away a good chunk of Pokemon. <laughs> people <Yeah>. forget this. <laughs> this is not the first time that... No, uh, this, is, game... this is Dexit Prime. Yes, this is the original Dexit. Um, so... Coliseum opened up a whole lot of Pokemon from Gen 2 in particular that you were able to unlock. And also it was a big deal because it was the first time that Pokemon had an actual RPG campaign on a home console. It yes. was all doubles. And uh, so I played all of Coliseum. I really enjoyed the the battles, or I, I really enjoyed the challenges. So there was a whole battle tower kind of se- sequence where you could take on these really fairly intense challenges uh, where they would be using a lot of really interesting gimmicks based on the various abilities and everything, and they could be quite difficult to stop. Also, you were fighting legendaries and such. So I I think I mentioned that sitting in my bug-ridden apartment, I played a heck of a lot of Pokemon Coliseum. (laughs) Also, really good music. Did the bugs play with you? Oh, good. (laughs) I just want to be your friend, Cat. No. <laughs> the thing that interests me about Pokemon Coliseum is it takes place in, I don't know if it's pronounced Or or Ray. It's a, it's a desert region based on Arizona, and there is no wild Pokemon to speak of. So you have the team going around called Team Snatchem, which is, okay, sure. Their whole thing is taking, like, you know, Pokemon from their trainers, which is, like, evil, evil, bad. You do not do that. That is the, the ultimate taboo, except maybe eating Pokemon. I don't know. And uh, it was interesting is that they turned Pokemon into shadow Pokemon, as I understand. And shadow Pokemon is a very big part of the, the Pokemon Go plot for what the Pokemon Go plot is worth. So I just found that very interesting. Yes, and then Pokemon XD Gale of Darkness came out uh, after that. Edgy hardcore. That was not one that I played because while ultimately I didn't hate Colosseum, I also thought, the con- I also thought that the, uh, well, first of all, I didn't like the character models very much. I was like, oh, this... They were weird. They were reusing a lot of stuff from Pokemon Stadiums and making it slightly higher res and had weird shadows. I, I and, and I didn't like the actual story. The story was pretty boring. I, I like the challenges mm-hmm. is what, what it boiled down yeah, to. Yeah, I think that's what most people play the Pokemon Coliseum games for. Um, I did find it interesting that the... I don't know if it was XD or Coliseum where the protagonist starts with the espion and uh, umbreon that was the uh, coliseum okay so i think that's very interesting so the usual fire i uh, fire water grass type yeah you could get espion and umbreon but you couldn't breed them to get the rest of the eons you had to get pokemon fire red and leaf green <laughs> oh of course come on cat buy them all which well, i'm sure we'll talk about with the game boy advance episode 
but and then of course speaking of the gba this is also a time when fire emblem came over to the west for the first time and we'll get into that more uh on the gba console rpg quest but it ended up fire emblem went over to the gamecube as well we got fire emblem path of radiance i bought the game when it came out pretty much immediately and i did not like it (laughs) I didn't like it either. Um, I don't know if I bought it when it came out, but I was just like, oh, I do not like the way this game looks because we mm-hmm. had gone from these beautiful sprites to these dull polygons. And there was voice acting, but I can't remember if it was any good. So a few things that a lot of people do like about Path of Radiance. First of all, it had a pretty good story by Fire Emblem standards. It introduced one of the most beloved characters in Fire Emblem Ike. history. That would be Ike. Who we like. Makes me think of the, the kid from uh, South Park who goes, Ike! The thing that what people like about Ike is that he's not a noble. He's more of a commoner. So it gives yeah, a... Yeah, he's a commoner. It gives a different dimension to the typical Fire Emblem story. Also, it's quite hard. Mm, it is. That I remember. It's a very unforgiving game. It is fairly rare these days. And I ended up selling my complete copy of Path of Radiance for like $200 on eBay. It was actually really? great. Yeah, I made, done. A, I made a fair amount of money selling my old copy of Path of Radiance, so. which was practically mint. Like, I barely touched it over <laughs> a long period of time. It was just sitting in my drawer for ages. Maybe you I'll get around to playing it someday, but I'm sure that a lot of Fire Emblem fans yeah, and Tales fans, etc. There's just better Fire Emblem games out there to play, to put your, your time into. You think so? Like what? Oh, three Houses. I'd much rather play Three Houses and play, like, But Three Houses is different. Radiant. It's, it's I a suppose. different game. Uh, I don't know. I guess I'm different when it comes to Fire Emblem. It's like, show me a good time. Don't show me muddy-ass graphics. I mean, I like Ike. He's cool. <laughs> don't show me muddy-ass graphics. <laughs> I'll just play Fire Emblem Heroes until the ending of the world. Yeah, see, those have good graphics in their own way. Okay, Nadia, let's wrap up the GameCube RPG legacy. First of all, what do you think is the best single RPG on the GameCube? Well, as we have gone over, I haven't played all of them, but I would definitely give my vote to Thousand Year Door. I just really enjoyed that game a whole lot, and I want to see it on Switch ASAP. Thank you. I think that's maybe the best pure RPG. In terms of the more traditional RPG, I would probably go Tales of Symphonia. Um, Yeah, Tales is probably the most important RPG on there. Yeah, I would say it's the most important one. Um, And, you know, it, it had some other games as well. It had a port of Skies of Arcadia... And it also had Mega Man X Command Mission. If uh, That's kind of your jam. <laughs> that was um, Mega Man X Command Mission. Don't ask me what the story is, because to this day I have no idea. The story is nonsense. The characters are kind of fun. What I really liked about Command Mission was I liked the depictions of these classic Mega Man X enemies as RPG characters. And I liked the fact that like even though the, the, the battle system was basic, you know, item, fight, run, magic, just with like kind of robotic names... Like, instead of getting poisoned, you'd get a virus or, or something like that. So it was just, it was still a very simple RPG, but it was fun to look at and fun to play. Not necessarily fun to follow because, again, the story was nonsense and the dungeons were totally, totally bland. So when it comes to the GameCube, I don't know. In 2006, we were all completely over the GameCube. We were ready for the next thing. We wanted Nintendo to get its mojo back because it definitely did that. did not do that with the GameCube. It felt like an abject failure at the time. It felt like Nintendo was out of touch. It didn't have a lot of games. Uh, All of the third-party developers were starting to abandon it. 
it was not a good time to be a Nintendo fan, honestly. And I think people really look back on the GameCube with rose-colored glasses because Smash Brothers Melee and such um, still remain so beloved. Uh, it certainly is seen, looked back on more fondly now, but at the time, it, it was rough. It was not great. Yeah, it was rough, and especially I could see why Nintendo was sweating a bit because I didn't realize until years later that the N64 had bombed in Japan because it did okay here, but it did not do well in Japan. So they had two systems on their hand, two major consoles that were just like, eh, whatever. Uh, when I look at some of these games, like I definitely still have fond feelings toward them, like Paper Mario. Um, I do remember my time with Pokemon Coliseum, like somewhat fondly, despite like my issues with it at the time uh, tales of symphonia still looks really good uh yeah. like if if i were to recommend is it's certainly i feel like the gamecube has a much stronger rpg legacy than in nintendo 64 which obviously oh, yeah. is no not question. hard not no question not only that i feel like the gamecube in general has a lot less shovelware or just crap games than the n64 and especially the wii had uh the n64 you had of course a handful of fantastic games so you had like a lot of muddy games that didn't play very well because the developers either they didn't care or they just couldn't really get the hang of the N64 because it was such a, uh, a you-know-what to program for. The Wii was infamous for its shovelware. But the GameCube, I don't know, I feel like when I look back at the GameCube, yes, there are only a few games there, but what is there is quite strong and, and uh, still holds up today. There was plenty of shovelware on the GameCube, trust me. There probably was, but I don't know, I just remember that, that those little discs being so cute. They were cute. They were very cute. But so also, they were a drawback for the GameCube, like so many other things. Anyway. Yeah, and I forget why. I think they just didn't hold enough data or something. Yeah, not enough memory. And Nintendo tried to spin it as a positive, as they do. The usual. <laughs> Nothing new under the sun. So what are your memories of the Nintendo GameCube? We want to know. Send us an email at cat.bailey at usgamer.net or send me a DM on Twitter. I want to know why you love the GameCube. Why is it your favorite console? Why do you have such fond memories of it? Because is it because you grew up with it, which so many people did? It was it was after all the cheaper console compared to the PS2 and the Xbox. That's so right. a lot of people had them, and it was family friendly too. It was very family friendly and very colorful. Okay, Nadia, let's continue on to the track of the week. Okay, every single week we take a look at a particular track from RPG history. And since this is the GameCube console RPG quest, I thought we'd take a look at a song from one of its best games, Baton Kaitos. And why don't you listen to this song? I am feeling gay after listening to that song. <laughs> yeah, when I looked at the comments for the YouTube uh, video, it's just everyone saying gay, gay, gay. And I don't know if that's what she's saying in the bridge there, but uh, it sure sounds like it. 
Uh, I think some people are going, maybe it's feeling good. I don't know. <laughs> I, I do know that this is kind of a manic song in the first half, and the bridge is a nice, you know, kind of a soothing interlude. Um, I have not played Baton Kaidos, as we have discussed, but I have heard about the battle that this goes with, and I don't hear good things about it because it's kind of a nightmare. You're up against three of the Emperor's best henchmen, and they fight dirty, and they also kind of trap you in one of those situations where apparently you save there, and you cannot go back, and you cannot grind. So you are either resetting your game, or you are powering through it somehow, and that's a bad position to be in. Yeah, it's one of those battles that can be a kind of a nightmare in a turn-based RPG in which you're not fighting three characters, you're, or you're not fighting a single character, you're fighting three characters because it's the chaotic trio, and it's led by Giacomo, who is one of the main villains of the original Baton Kaitos. And it's one of those situations where you always feel like you're completely overwhelmed because they keep hitting you with attacks. Uh, Amy yeah. is constantly hitting you with attacks she has like nine uh they have nine hit combos or something like that it's kind of ridiculous so it's very very ridiculous it's a definitely a very frustrating battle um so i guess it's good that you have this honestly pretty cool game a pretty cool song to help you along it gets your blood pumping for what that's worth yeah so when it comes to chaotic dance i I think the thing that stands out to me about this song is that it kind of reminds me of persona (laughs) It does. It do- It sounds very much like, now that you mention it, it sounds very much like a Persona song, like one of the really climactic ones where you're funny against a shadow who's about to rearrange your ass. And this was, it feels very of the time, because you did not really yes. hear songs like this in the PlayStation era. This is where it feels like composers, composers were breaking out a little more, getting poppier with their arrangements, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. I heard someone describe this as like kind of prog rock. I don't know about that, but... Um... Someone so, else called it like techno or rave. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess you could say so because it has a very distinct beginning, and then it continues on uh, into kind of nonsensical lyrics, but very catchy nonsensical lyrics. Very, very catchy. It's one of those songs where I listen to it and I'm like, oh, well, this is certainly a song. But then I listen to it again and I'm like, oh, you know what? I kind of like where this is going. I understand what they're trying to do here. It doesn't really circle back, so I guess in that sense, it's progressive, right? No, there you go. Yeah, so you have a point there. Uh, but it is nice to listen to. It, as you said, it gets your blood pumping during the actual battle, which takes a very long time because you're having to basically take down each enemy one at a time until finally you get to Giacomo. Uh, and uh, by the way, as he gets lower in health, he starts using finishing moves on you, which is a real bastard. And did I mention that you, you fight this person, you fight the Chaotic Trio twice? <laughs> oh, dear me. And just the fact that you can't, you know, if that is true, that you can't back out and you can't grind, it's just like, oh, I would just be banging my head against a wall. But Chaotic Dance was composed by Motoi Sakuraba who has a very, very, very long history with he, Japanese. He's been in everything, basically. If there isn't he if there is an RPG or a Mario Golf game, <laughs> he has been in it. For sure. I mean he goes back to at least nineteen eighty nine, there thereabouts when he was working with Wolf Team. 
Uh, he is known for his light rock style and energetic melodies and definitely has close ties to Japanese prog rock. Uh, in 1989, he composed a big fat album that was a kind of tribute to Japanese and Italian prog rock, which I found pretty interesting. That's pretty cool. He's been involved in everything from Tales of Fantasia, Star Ocean, Star Fox 64, Pokemon X and Y. He was helping out with Smash Brothers Ultimate in 2018. He's just been around. Like he, and so he also worked on Baton Kaidos. He worked on my personal favorite RPG, Valkyrie Profile. Oh, there you go. A plus. So once I heard the Baton Kaidos soundtrack, I was like, oh, duh, of course. <laughs> Now I get it. Because he, yeah, like when you hear the Star Ocean and Valkyrie profile themes, they do have that kind of driving guitar or just super energetic battle themes in particular. Uh, they make you want to start fighting a lot, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not subtle a lot of the time, especially some of the Valkyrie profile uh, dungeon themes, but they do sound really nice. Whereas I think Baton Kaito's is actually more sophisticated and you see that definitely with Chaotic Dance. Like it does actually get away from his more of a rock style, I suppose you could say. Yeah. Like I said before, I really get like almost like a techno rave vibe out of it. And what I, but though, interestingly, it's also a departure from a lot of the rest of Baton Kaito's soundtrack because, mm -hmm. uh, when you listen to like the battle theme and that kind of thing, Baton Kaito's battle theme, especially when you're fighting a boss and it gets into the guitar version uh, of, of, of its particular theme. Forgive me, I don't remember the exact name of that theme right now off the top of my head. But uh, when you get to the guitar version of that, it feels much more in keeping with something that you would hear in some of his other work. Whereas Chaotic Dance, like I said, goes into more of that Jet Set Radio or Persona vibe, the popular yeah. tune. Yeah, when you mentioned Jet Set Radio, I'm like, oh, yeah, I definitely hear that the repetitive voices in the background. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is the point where we were starting to have a lot more, what's the word, uh, memory storage on these particular games. So you could have <laughs> so, a lot more fun with the actual lyrics and such. So it was like, oh man, I'm so ready for chanting. Let's get some chanting in here. You could have a uh, much higher fidelity songs. I want to say so. Yeah. Um, I will say the voice acting in that game is, whoo, <laughs> it's, it's a job. All right. Well, Ban Kaito's kicking soundtrack. I really enjoy it. It does have a kicking soundtrack. Um, again, a, a channel I listen to is uh, RPGRadio.net, and Might and Stuff comes up often, and it always sounds pretty great. So there you go. That is the track of the week, the chaotic dance from Ban Kaito's. So have a listen to it one more time. And okay, let's continue on to the mailbag. Nadia, like I said last week, we talked about the Mana series. People have opinions on the Mana series. Would you believe that? And most of them are very uh, agreeing with you. Of course they are, because I'm right. Oh, oh, uh, is that is that the direction <laughs> that we're going with this whole thing? Well, I mean, I mean, duh, yeah, of course. So Gamer Law says Secret of Mana continues to rank as my favorite game of all time. I can remember picking it up in 1993 and loving every minute of it. It was different from the turn-based RPG I had grown to love, and while it suffered no shortage of technical flaws, the simplicity inherent and its experience was key to its charm and appeal. The characters and narrative were touching and relatable. The level of care and detail that went to the design was evident throughout, and the soundtrack, well, it is second to none. As I listened to Kat and Nadia debate the topic, I arrived at the conclusion that the Mono series stands the test of time precisely because of that simplicity. 
Not every RPG needs to be a deep dive into existentialism or involve evoke a plot so deep and intricate that Tolstoy himself could not unravel it. Sometimes the KISS <laughs> principle works well in an RPG. So keep it simple, stupid. I mean, fair, yeah. I guess, if, if you want to say that. I'm, I, I think that a lot of people were praising the kind of, uh, you know, low-key chat. I don't want to use the word childishness of it, but the younger vibe of Secret of Mana mm-hmm. saying that that's core to its charm in the, for a lot of people. Yeah, um, there's a certain soothing colorfulness to it. I, yeah, I don't know if childish is the right word, as you said. It's Storybook? Just, storybook's a better word. Fairy tale, definitely. Yeah. Um, Hell's Black Aces says, Trials of Mana 16-bit basically splitting the content into different two different playthroughs made it feel thin compared to Secret of Mana, just makes the first playthrough weaker and doesn't offer enough to make a second playthrough worthwhile if you don't care about the class system. I read an FAQ back in the day about party composition when I played the fan-translated version of Trials Mana. had a good point. Picking healing characters makes the game harder. Nadia, do you agree that you think that splitting the story between so many characters makes it weaker? Um, I have said in our past episode that I don't think the story in uh, Trials of Mana is extremely strong. I think the Secret of Mana story, as simple as it is, it feels a lot more compelling because you're just following these three kids as they, you know, do simple things like try to get the sword, try to find the hero's mother, uh, try to chase after Prim's boyfriend who keeps getting kidnapped. Those are, are simple things, but they keep you going. You don't have nearly as much of that in Trials of Mana, but I would say that like I, I'm still compelled to do a second playthrough because it's like, okay, well, here's Kevin's story. I want to know what Hawk's Hawkeye's story is because you do run into the villains from the other side of the story, but they just kind of give you a, hey, how are you doing before they, they take off? And when you ultimately meet them again, unless they're the villains that have something to do with your story, they die. So I am still curious, okay, what leads them up to this point? Why, why does this particular thing happen? It's not anything really groundbreaking, of course, when you do find out, but it's just kind of fun to see how it, how it gets there. And the different characters, yes, they do indeed play differently. So I just kind of like fooling around with them. But yeah, I can understand why some people would not really be compelled to follow the story uh, again with Trials of Mana. Um, I do think that is definitely one of his weakest uh, problems. And I'm, I'm going to finish the mailbag by having somebody who agrees with me. <laughs> of course, you got to have one. Roto13 says, I got to say, I've tried several times to play through Secret of Mana. I just don't think it holds up. The weird hit-stun on enemies, the uselessness of CPU party members, the way the camera seems to think you're way more interested in places you were, you just were than places you're going, and most importantly, the way sword attacks are seemingly random thrusts and slashes. It's a lot to deal with. Oh, also the menus. So unintuitive. Yeah, the ring menus have been divisive over history. Uh, once you get used to it, it's very much a game where once you get used to it, you totally get the hang of it, but if you don't get used to it or you don't feel like getting the hang of it, I can understand why you'd be like, yeah, screw this. I'll yeah. go play Final Fantasy. The, the ring menus would always go like a million menus deep, and it would actually be so annoying. <laughs> yeah, because it is it is really stupid the way they programmed it. Like, your menu in Secret of Mana is Y. And, of course, you have to go press down or up to get to, say, if you want equipment to equip yourself. And then your party members' menus are X. Why is it different? I don't get that. All right. Thanks for sending in notes to the mailbag. And we do like to do a mailbag episode if you want to have your 
mail red if you want a topic that you want to talk about send an email to cat.bailey at usgamer.net or dm me on twitter okay acts of blood god is a us gamer podcast you can find us on itunes Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold follow me on twitter at the underscore catbot nadia's at nadia oxford and be sure to subscribe to our, our newsletter which comes out every single wednesday we'll be back next week with yet more rpg goodness to help you get through this pandemic i'm really looking forward to it but in the meantime, for Nadia and myself, thanks for listening. And until next time, stay healthy, stay safe, and stay indoors, and happy adventuring. <laughs>